DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, a growing number of kids are getting involved in policymaking. We'll get some insights from one of them. Every child deserves to live a fair life. And unfortunately, some people just aren't able to use their voices. And so I just wanted to contribute to something that could potentially change a child's life for the better. And when it comes to protecting children from abuse, Japan has found a surprising solution. We have 20,000 cases here. No one can carry all of that information in their heads. But AI can help with its capacity for lots of knowledge. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're going to take a closer look at what's actually going right when it comes to improving the lives of children across the globe. One noticeable improvement is the sudden push by policymakers to ask children directly what they need and what they want. This is coming from the highest levels of policymaking, and the climate movement is largely to credit for this trend. Philip Jaffe, the vice chair of the UN's Committee on the Rights of the Child, says young climate activists really grabbed the UN's attention in recent years. It just brought us to a whole different level of thinking, wow, yes, of course children need to be uh, more involved and we have to hear them more directly. We'll be hearing more about that from Philip Jaffe later in the show. The input from kids extends far beyond climate change at this point, though. We're now going to hear from a young woman I spoke with this week who worked on a children's advisory team last year about what that was like. Here's what she had to say. Hello, my name is Farah. I'm 18. and Farah is from Egypt and has asked to only be referred to by her first name for safety reasons. She got involved with a Geneva-based NGO called Child Rights Connect back in 2021 when she was still a minor. The NGO works closely with the UN and on other projects as well. Um, I wanted to get involved because I love helping people. And for as long as I remember, I've really wanted to um, do this sort of thing because I hate seeing injustice, especially for like vulnerable groups of people like children. And I believe that a large percentage of children aren't actually fully aware of their rights. And so they just, you know, they settle for whatever is provided by adults and they don't really know what they can, like they can ask for more. And so like I'm really passionate about this because I believe every child deserves to live a fair life. And unfortunately, some people just aren't able to use their voices. And so I just wanted to contribute to something that could potentially change a child's life for the better. Farah was part of a child advisory team for Child Rights Connect made up of 12 kids from around the world. They weighed in on issues like children's rights during the pandemic and a child-friendly version of a report on child human rights defenders for the UN. Finding the right word choice for kids was often an issue, and so was shedding light on their experiences. Um, I think generally adults and children are very different when it comes to all sorts of like experiences and especially mental health, and so I think there had to be representation. She says the experience also opened her eyes to just how much information kids need to understand their own rights. There was a lot that I wasn't aware of and I even like thought I knew it all (laughs) Um, but then there was a lot that I didn't actually know and so I can only imagine like people who haven't heard of anything at all may like really struggle with knowing um, like the full extent um, of their rights and stuff. And she says there was one particular right guaranteed by the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child 
that she didn't know about. So like having a child's like best interest, I was not aware of that at all because I feel like most decisions are made based on like what adults want and what adults think should happen. But I didn't know that there was a right for um, the best interest of the child to be uh, like a priority. Farah says she hopes that kids will have access to more initiatives like these so that their voices can be heard too. She says children need to be more involved in big decisions. For example, when it comes to climate change. We as children have to sort of deal with the consequences of things that older generations have sort of done. And we aren't really as involved in decision making when we are the ones who are going to actually have to deal with those consequences. And so I feel like decisions that really greatly affect us, we should be, you know, big part of the solution and a big part of the decisions that are made, you know, around climate change. Farah was under 18 when she got involved, but now at 18 and technically an adult, she still wants to focus on children's rights. You know, unfortunately, the older I get, the more sort of um, power I can have. And so the more I can help. And I wish younger children had the same sort of opportunities. But then I know that the older I get, the more opportunities I have. And so I want to use that to sort of help children who can't really help themselves. And I just feel like, I feel like, you know, every little, you know, step counts and there could really be bigger changes um, soon. Hopefully. Farah spoke with World in Progress earlier this week from her home in Egypt. Kids across the globe are also driving change at the local level. Take Peru, for example. There's a project that's cleaning up a huge trash problem and also giving low-income kids a better way to earn money safely. And the teen behind the project was just seven years old when he started it all. Reporters Anna Herberg and Matthias Ebert have more. Their report is presented by Ben Restle. Now that she's done with her homework, it's time for Kiara to separate the family's trash. The 11-year-old sorts anything made of paper, glass or tin into separate heaps. The schoolgirl from Peru is part of an unusual recycling network. It's the country's first ecobank for children. Three years ago, my mother suggested I should join this network. I want to save enough money to buy a laptop for myself, which my mom couldn't afford. Kiara and her mom live in Arequipa, Peru's second largest city. It's located in the southern part of the country, in the Andes Mountains, and it's surrounded by glaciers. Arequipa has its fair share of problems, just like many cities in Peru. One of them is too much trash that piles up on streets. Also, many children have to work to help support their families. Some can be seen selling goods to pedestrians or at traffic lights. That's why José Adolfo Kisokala founded the Ecobank a few years ago. Kiara takes the sorted trash to the Ecobank's recycling collection point once a month. She receives money in return depending on the weight. Today, she got the equivalent of €4.50. That's a lot of money for a pupil in Peru, where the average income is just €450 a month. The Ecobank has helped my daughter learn how to earn money and how to save it. Recycling is also good for the environment. 
Every day, more than 7,000 kids and teens bring their trash to José Adolfo, the founder of the recycling bank. He's only 17 himself, but he's been doing this for almost a decade. Once a week, he sells the collected trash to local recycling companies. We've created a circular economy and are helping the environment because these companies are recycling the waste. The money from the recycling is transferred automatically to the children's accounts at José's EcoBank. I always ask myself why it was that only adults were allowed to have bank accounts and not kids. My idea for the EcoBank was born once I understood that kids could make money from recycling. Every day, more kids open a bank account with José. They even get to have their own credit card with their account. José's project has been quite successful and he wants to expand his ecobank across Peru. It's my dream to improve the lives of many children, not just here in Peru, but across Latin America. Kiara says her life has already improved. She used her first savings to buy herself a makeup table. I never would have thought I could buy myself something like that as an 11-year-old. It's amazing. Her next goal is to save enough money for a laptop. Ben Restler with that report by Anna Herberg and Matthias Ebert. Well, one person who's been watching this growing trend of child activism with great interest is a man named Philip Jaffe. Jaffe is the vice chair of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child. The committee's been working to improve the lives of children for many years, but Jaffe says it wasn't until very recently that it actually started actively working with people under 18 to help make its policies more child-friendly. And that can take on many different forms, from surveying thousands of kids online to consulting with a small advisory team of children to conducting focus groups on the ground across the globe. He spoke to me earlier this week from Geneva. Philip Jaffe, welcome to World in Progress. Thank you for having me. The UN Committee on the Rights of the Child now has a working group on child participation. So for people who are unfamiliar with this term, what does that mean, child participation? Well, child participation is at the heart of children's rights. And uh, in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which every country in the world has signed except the U.S., at the heart of the convention is an article, Article 12, that says that we all have an obligation to hear what children have to say, to record their opinions and to act on those opinions. So that's what child participation is about, making sure that children's voices are heard heard, and taken into account. So how are kids selected to participate in these advisory teams? Yeah, well, this is a challenge because obviously these advisory teams uh, teams need to include children from all different walks of life and be as inclusive as possible. So the pro- selection process, the application process, sorry, is open, but then there's a, several filters that are introduced to make sure that we capture as diverse and composition of a small group, 12, 15 children who represent uh, all these different uh, uh, dimensions that I mentioned. So in some cases, you know, we'll pick up a child 
with disabilities from uh, the South Pacific and an indigenous child from Greenland and a child from Africa. But there are barriers. I mean, there's the fact that language is a barrier and we we only have so many uh, working languages. So it's a complicated process. And by no means are we happy with the full representation of children um, in, in our child advisory teams. In the same way that not all specialists are represented in the Committee on the Rights of the Child, which has only 18 members. You said another way that you hear from kids is through mail, that the UN gets a lot of mail. Can you tell us more about like what kind of letters and emails you get and, and where these kids are from that are writing in? And what are they writing in about, more importantly? Perhaps a, a lot of mail is a, perhaps a bit of an exaggeration, but we do get um, a mail on a fairly regular basis. And most of it has to do with quote-unquote, complaints. Usually children, if they're not represented by adults, they tend to write to us a little bit, um, how should I say it, without following procedure. And we get these raw uh, letters that are are quite touching, uh, complaining about uh, issues um, such as uh, their housing uh, quality, uh, if they live in slums or not being able to attend school. So when it comes to the big issues that are affecting kids worldwide, which one would you say is the biggest one that we really need to be listening to children about right now? Well, without a doubt, uh, climate change. I mean, this is an issue that they've um, seized on, that they feel very strongly about, that they convincingly argue is something that affects their lives, and indeed, even their own survival in a way, and certainly their health. And they've been pushing for this issue on the global agenda but also uh, bringing um, complaints to the committee. In truth, they kick-started our participation process within the committee. Not to say that it wasn't an issue we were aware of or preoccupied by, but it, it just brought us to a whole different level of thinking, wow, yes, of course children need to be Uh, more involved and we have to hear them more directly. You've no doubt worked with many different types of people in your capacity at the UN and and in general throughout your career, but what surprised you the most about working with kids? Well, I'll tell you, I have to be very frank. Um, uh, Children, it's also a bit hit and miss, just like with adults. You can meet with groups of children and you have a feeling that you didn't really get a lot out of it. Uh, Sometimes you get the same boring feeling with adults. But every now and then, um, and actually quite frequently, children say things in a spontaneous, unadorned, uh, direct, frank, honest manner that just registers differently, even when compared to an adult who's uh, making, do, doing a good job at communicating. And so, in a way, what children express when it's close to their mind and, and heart, it just hits you differently. And being in the business of uh, child rights, of course, you know, who who would I be if I didn't listen more carefully to the children I meet? So in a way, it's a, it's a two-way street. They, they sort of spontaneously and naturally uh, say things in a much more impactful way. And we are, as colleagues uh, on the Committee on the Rights of the Child, more attuned and uh, more attentive to the things they say. And also because they, they talk about things that are really really serious that concern their, their lives on, a, on an everyday basis. I mean, to give you an example, a few weeks ago, we met with um, a representation of children from uh, Turkey, the new uh, uh, label for a uh, name for Turkey. 
And uh, these were free children with disabilities, visually impaired children who talked to us about their daily lives as students and all the barriers they faced and the lack of support they were getting and uh, how untrained the teachers were and how frustrating it was for bright kids, despite being visually impaired, has nothing to do with their cognitive abilities, abilities being held back and suffering. So these are things that You know, when you reach the UN and we hear these things, obviously we can try and act on them and we'll talk to the government about how they treat children with disabilities and we'll do our best to apply pressure so that these kids are taken into account and their rights upheld. Philip Jaffe, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. You're most welcome. Thank you. Philip Jaffe is the vice chair of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. He spoke with us earlier this week from Geneva. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, we'll hear about some surprising ways two countries in Asia are rescuing kids from abuse. Stay tuned. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. In the second half of this week's show, we're looking at a few ways experts are making the world a little bit safer for children who've fallen victim to abuse. Our first story comes from Japan, where artificial intelligence is helping one call center identify children in danger faster. Evelyn McClafferty has this story from Katrin Edman. There's a buzz of activity in the open plan office of the Children's Counseling Centre, Hartport, which is part of the district of Idogava in northeastern Tokyo. The phone rings up to 500 times a day, but since February, artificial intelligence has been lending a helping hand on the phones, explains department head Kaori Kusaka. The system has two special features. First, all conversations are transcribed simultaneously, so we don't need to summarize anything anymore. And secondly, the supervisor can read directly from the screen. The other employees can read along too. It's a huge advantage, says office manager Tomoya Yokohama. The employees all have different knowledge. So if someone with little experience is in the middle of a conversation, someone else with a lot of experience can help out and give them pointers. It's also a big advantage in more critical situations. In a very serious case, 
for example, a case of child abuse, the employee can talk to the child, while the others try and find out where the child lives and what the family situation is. The system is programmed in such a way that the screen will flash red when it recognises certain words such as police, wrist or domestic violence, explains Kusaka. The alarm will then also flash on the supervisor's screen. They'll immediately see that there is a conversation that has priority or that they should participate directly. Last year, Japanese police registered more than 100,000 cases of child endangerment, 80% of which were considered psychological violence, such as neglect or verbal abuse. Sexual abuse only made up a minority of the cases. In Idokova district, there were even fewer calls during the pandemic, according to Kasaka. We assume that many cases were overlooked during the pandemic. At the same time, it was harder for vulnerable children to seek help and advice because their parents were always around. However, transcribing the conversations is just one part of the pilot project. In the second phase, the artificial intelligence system was fed with 20,000 cases of child welfare threats from the district. The system is primarily about artificial intelligence deciding whether or not it's necessary to take a child into temporary care. The system therefore makes recommendations based on existing cases. That's because many cases follow a familiar pattern, says Kusaka. The early trials show promise, even if the system has its limits. We regard artificial intelligence as a competent assistant. We have 20,000 cases here. No one can carry all of that information in their heads. But AI can help with its capacity for lots of knowledge. Artificial intelligence saves time, which can then be invested in advising and helping vulnerable children. But it also helps to maintain a sense of cohesion within the human team, says Kusaka. Employees no longer feel alone on a case, and everyone can help each other even more. Evelyn McLafferty with that story from Katrin Edman. Turning now to India. Child labor is still prevalent in several pockets of the western Indian state of Rajasthan. Rajasthan also has one of the highest crime rates against children. But many people are afraid to go to the police for help, so one NGO has made it their mission to give the police a bit of a makeover. And so far, it's working. Morali Krishnan has more. Hanwan Singh Rajpurohit is an inspector at Rajnagar Police Station in Rajsaman District. He's interacting with a group of women called the One-Stop Security Workers. Rajsaman District, which lies in northwest India, has a high prevalence of child marriages and abuse. This group of women works with local police stations to protect children, especially relating with adolescent girls in the area. The interventions by this group of women are also aimed at helping the police shed the image of someone to be afraid of. Inspector Raj Purohit explains. We are trying to change with the help of these workers, community friends and NGOs. We're working hard together to change our image. Raj Purohit says he wants to lead by example, 
when it comes to tending to children in need of care and protection. I've decided to keep several children under my foster care. They lost their parents very young. I have decided to give them an education and they live in my house. Despite various laws and schemes to protect the rights of children, bonded labor and trafficking and sexual abuse remains rampant in parts of India. In the tribal regions of southern Rajasthan, for example, child trafficking is still prevalent. The districts of Udaipur, Banswara, Dungarpur and Pratapgarh have witnessed many incidents of child trafficking. At times, parents living in dire poverty are forced to mortgage their children for food because of sheer necessity. It is difficult to estimate the number of such cases, but activists say it is up at an alarming frequency. Sheila Sen, a community worker who works with children, explains. I go around encouraging children who have been abused or rescued to go to the police. Some children do report what has happened to them. Others are reluctant to come forward, but the idea is to remove fear and I help them. Raju, an adolescent, was saved from hard labor by the police a couple of months back. I was forced to wash cars for hours and the police saw me. It was hard work. I was working for a year and things were bad at home. I was rescued with difficulty, but now I am slowly getting back to school. Om Prakash, a police constable, was instrumental in rescuing Raju. I rescued him and charged those who are forcing him to work. They've been slapped with penal charges. Now he's been admitted to a school. A large number of tribal children are trafficked from southern Rajasthan, bordering North Gujarat, to work as paid labourers. Every year, thousands of children are trafficked to cotton seed plots for work in the cotton fields, according to NGOs working in the sector. The Center for Labor Research and Action, an NGO, says child laborers continue to be employed in large numbers. Children are trafficked as bonded labor, where physical and sexual abuse at work sites is also not uncommon. Sanjay Nirala is a child protection consultant at the UN's Child Protection Agency UNICEF. Child abuse is a very serious issue still in uh, Rajasthan because of the patriarchal society and, and the kind of the respect for the women. The data of uh, National Crime Record Bureau, almost 6,000 girls has been reported annually who has gone through this kind of violence. So has child-friendly policing helped? Sanjay Nirala again. When you talk about the violence and then abuse, the first place where the reports go is the police. If police is not sensitive enough, then it's a very severe violation of rights of the children. Child-friendly policing is one of the components that we are working towards to create a positive attitude and behavior of the police officers so they accept the cases. For children in difficult circumstances, often the first point of contact in the juvenile justice system is the police and they have been criticized for how they interact with rescued children. Often, the police treat any individual 
with suspicion. And when a child comes into contact with the police, there is similar treatment. In the last few years, the police have also opened up a number of child-friendly police stations. The idea behind the move is to create a safe space for victims of child sexual abuse that will provide them with a congenial atmosphere and also help them open up to the police. More than 137 such child-friendly police stations have opened up in the Udaipur division of the state, while the first such station was opened in 2018. These interactions are helping break the ice between children and police, according to the one-stop security workers. And the police is gradually becoming aware of the challenges that abused children face on a daily basis as they see them living or working on the streets or rescued from bonded labor. Anjana Sukwal, a deputy superintendent of police, oversees the program. At grassroots level, several efforts have been done. Children can contact protection committees at villages, which is the basic unit of our local administration. And the police department too is getting more and more sensitized. So changes will be definitely on ground. These are still early days as the police try to change their image and help shed the badge of fear from their uniform. Murli Krishnan, Rajasthan, DW. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, check out DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions for us, just drop us a line at worldinprogress at DW.com. This week's show was produced by Vivka Teichtmeyer and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Nicodemus Braun. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.